Well, good morning, everyone. I think I'm still recovering from that hundred grand. Oh, I need that. Hold on. Thank you. Uh, so we're beginning a a new series. It's called "Pump the Brakes," like you do, you know, when you're driving a car. Um, we're talking about when we got too much going on kind of in life. I need to pump the brakes on that. Uh, and really, before I go any further, I just kind of want to say, uh, and I've told a few people this uh, in preparing for this morning, that I began to really feel like a hypocrite. Here I'm going to be talking and speaking on slowing down. And as I've studied and as I prepared for this message, uh, I've just experienced an absolute smashing of the accelerator pedal, and just everything took off, fighting for my attention, and just time and time and time, and away I go. So I'd be lying to you this morning if I told you this message is, this is for you. Uh, the first person I'm preaching to this morning is myself. Uh, so would you just join me in prayer real quick? Uh, Lord, I ask that you would hide me behind the cross, that it would be your words speaking through me, Lord. I pray that uh, we would have our ears and our hearts open to what you would have to say. I ask in this moment that you would be uh, increasing and that I would decrease. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name. So last weekend I was on a youth retreat. I'm coming back with uh, a van, my high-performance Honda Odyssey minivan. And that's it's, it's very important to the story. And so uh, on, the, on the road back, uh, we have to go on this uh, long on-ramp. You've been on these before, right? It's almost like a complete loop. And typically, they have suggested speeds, you know, 25, 35, something like that, 45, I don't know. And I didn't see one posted. So I decided I would find out what the suggested speed would be. And so as, you know, you start making the turn and, you know, you're hitting the accelerator, you just kind of, you never do, you just... Oh, and you just kind of start leaning now, going that way, and then I, I hear the row of students behind me go, whoa, and they all slam into each other, and phrases like, I'm going to be sick, start coming out uh, towards me. Um, I, mean, I, I mean, you guys are laughing like you've experienced this before. I mean, uh, you ever turn into, you know, been in a vehicle that's turning a little too fast? Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of an experience, um, and you... Uh, go through this thing called centripetal force, you know, where you're just getting thrown and you feel like you got n- you got no control. This is taking you. You're just going. Um, and did I know better? Uh, probably. Um, my very first driver's ed class, you know, nothing like getting a room full of insecure teenagers and then, you know, trying to teach them something. And so bef- as, you know, we, you know, whatever the class started, it was like six or whatever, um, the teacher didn't introduce herself or anything like that. She just walked up to the board and she just drew a curve. And she had this little car and she's like, all right, before you come to the, the turn, the curve, you brake. And you go through the turn and as you come out, you accelerate. I was like, oh, okay, before names, before this is class rules, this is how things are going to go, before anything else, the first thing she said, brake before you turn. It's number one priority. And I thought that was, that was kind of odd until I started driving and realized how, how important that was uh, to learn how to brake. You learn pretty quickly. But anyone's ever driven a car or currently learning how to drive a car or will learn how to drive a car, you guys know this. 
uh, something, that, okay, maybe some common knowledge. Um, but this isn't a message about you helping you drive. I know you guys are like elbowing your spouse, like taking notes, you know, pay attention to this. But it is, this is not about pumping the brakes on your driving habits. This is about pumping the brakes on your life, on your relationships, your friendships, uh, on your soul, uh, maybe on your finances, um, on your emotional state, your mental state, because we all feel tension. And what I mean by tension or, or polar um, things fighting for us kind of goes like this. So uh, several weeks ago, I'm driving in a car, again, so that, another car analogy here, and uh, the person in front of me decided not to go when it's green, and so I missed the opportunity to go through the intersection. And now normally, no big deal. But I was headed to an appointment, and I was kind of close, because uh, I'm kind of a last-minute Larry, as my mom says. And uh, so I didn't get to go through the intersection. Okay, no problem. But uh, I really needed to make this appointment, because uh, at that appointment, I needed to get a shot, because uh, I needed to get a shot to go into France. I'm going on a mission trip uh, in a couple of weeks, and so... Uh, you know, no appointment, no shot, no France. And I need to go to France because I'm in a program uh, called LEAD. That's equipping me for ministry. And one of the requirements to graduate is you got to go on an international trip. Okay. And so if I don't go on an international trip, that kind of delays my graduation, which then impacts my licensing, ordination, and, you know, the things you got to do to be a pastor. And so essentially then my career becomes totally unknown and chaos reigns. All because, well, you know, no green light, no appointment, no shot, no France, delay graduation, no licensing, no ordination, and total chaos. All because this driver decided he wasn't going to go. Oh, my gosh. I mean, anyone else have a moment? You're just like, ah. Okay. Glad it's not just me. Okay. We, the truth is, though, we all really feel tension and pull all the time. Um, this happens from different sources, and it comes at us from in a lot of different ways all the time. And it could be uh, something small, uh, like when your TV battery remote dies, and you got to get up and go hit a button. Uh, or it could be something really major. Uh, you have a loved one going through uh, a medical emergency. But what's becoming, I don't know, really unique and really obvious is about the day and age we live in is tension and pull is at like an all-time high, and like it's just non-stop. And all of us are kind of beginning to sense this. We're like, this is getting a little, a little crazy. You just listen to the radio, and no longer is it about ads. Hey, come buy this product. What do you hear ads about? It's all, come work for us. Can't find people. Um, 4.5 million people quit their jobs in November. That's a lot of people. Like, what is going on? Uh, stats show that one in five healthcare workers have quit since the start of COVID. It's called, expert experts uh, call it the great reson- uh, resonation. Uh, and it doesn't matter the industry, doesn't matter position, CEOs, leaders, management, um, you name it, uh, skilled workers are quitting at an extremely high rate. There's a Tim Elmore, he's an author, researcher, uh, speaker, kind of like a thought leader. He tells this story that he was at a conference before COVID uh, and in the green room with all the other speakers at this big conference, uh, all these leaders and experts. Uh, he decided, because he's curious, he's a researcher, he's going to ask him a question. He's, uh, and he's like, I'm using this as a focus group. And he asked him, 
uh, since you started your leadership journey, has leading gotten easier or harder? That was it. And the entire room said, without a doubt, it's gotten harder. The world's gotten way more complex, and it's changing way rapid, <clears throat> way more rapid than ever before. And here's the really scary part, you know, for us. Uh, between our, our phones, our places of work, politics, culture, neighbors, friends, family, um, we've become, as individuals and kind of collectively as a group, extremely busy, crazy busy. And we've just decided we're going to normalize this now. Let me know if you've had this conversation with somebody. So somebody you know, maybe a friend, something like that, uh, you haven't seen in a while, and you go, you know, hi, friend, how are you doing? And they go, good, just busy, yeah. How about you? Yeah, yeah, good, you know, I, I got stuff going on. You just kind of did the, like, the nod, like, yeah, 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 okay. I'll see you later. Yeah, it was great catching up, and you just just walk on by. Like, that's just acceptable and normal behavior. And I think we start believing that if you actually slowed down, if you weren't busy all the time, if you've been to drop a few things, if you did drop responsibilities, maybe some people, things that, you know, you're taking on, um, you might fall behind. You might become irrelevant. You might start becoming a failure. Maybe you couldn't even become employable then. You, you can't disappoint people. So you just kind of keep on trucking. Keep going. Put your head down and just grind. And I'm not like anti-hustle. In fact, I really appreciate hustle and work ethic and doing stuff. That's, those are good qualities you will find in the Bible time and time again. In fact, the Bible warns against laziness and suckiness. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just the consistent feeling of having way more things to do than you have time for. And then since we have no say about it, um, you know, the world's just moving and you've got to keep up, uh, we believe there's nothing we can do. We don't have the power to change it. So in the end, you're just kind of feeling left hopeless, uh, maybe a little tired, actually all of us probably feeling really tired. There's not one person I haven't talked to this year who hasn't experienced some kind of deep, heavy tiredness. All of us are experiencing this. And then you kind of maybe even become depressed by watching some of the unhealthy tendencies you have in your life and the lives kind of around you. So that's what the series is about. Woohoo! Pump the brakes. Right? Because I don't know about you, but I've believed this lie for way too long. And since coming on staff a little over a year ago, I've, going to be honest, flirted with burnout because I believe I have to just keep on trucking so many times and times again. And as I've um, deep-dived in this over actually months, this has been a journey I've been on for several months, like trying to explore and understand this, that there's a war raging for me, raging for my attention, raging for my time, raging for my energy, for my focus, for different things. There's a war raging for that. 
There's busyness is kind of happening for that. Corey Ten Boom said that if Satan can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. Because it does the exact same thing that sin does. It separates you from God. So, maybe we should get some help here. Uh, if we're followers of Jesus, and we're following his leading, what is he saying about this? Or what does he have to say about this? Because what if Jesus is inviting us into something different and not what we've been experiencing? Uh, this is what he said uh, in John uh, 14, uh, 26. He said, uh, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. I don't know about you, but when I'm observing this super fast-paced life we live in and the people around me, I don't really see a whole lot of peace that Jesus said he gave us, he has for us. Uh, and when Jesus walked on the earth, he was constantly under tension. There was constantly things pulling at him, trying to get him to the left and to the right all the time. And then when you read through the Gospels, you begin to see that Jesus was never in a hurry. Didn't matter what was happening, he never was in a hurry. He never was about busyness. And instead, he was about peace. He was about being uh, present. I think more adjectives I would use is he was like anchored. He was grounded. He was centered. He was, that's what Jesus was about all the time. And it doesn't matter the tension he was going through. In fact, uh, this morning we're going to look at a story on the Gospel of John chapter 11. Uh, and look at how Jesus just navigates some of this pull, some of this tension that he's experienced in his life. Uh, and there's so much going on in this story that I'm actually going to tell you what's paraphrased and tell you what's happening to this point because of all the craziness taking place. And so if you want to follow along, uh, we begin in chapter 11, verse 1. And the story actually starts where Jesus receives a message from his dear friends, uh, Mary and Martha, and it says, Lord, the one you love is sick. Referring to Lazarus, who is one of Jesus' best friends, and Mary and Martha's brother. And so Jesus responds to this urgent message. You know, your good friend is super sick, which generally means if you're going to send that message, it's not looking good. And he says, all right, this is going to glorify God, and he proceeds to wait two days. Two whole days. I don't know about you, but whenever uh, I receive a text, phone call, something about a medical emergency, I kick it into, I'm going to move some mountains to like, get there or to try and help out. Like we just, that's our instinct. Like, all right, time to go. Time to get into fix-it mode, into whatever. I got I to gotta do something. Full support. Here we go. Full throttle. But Jesus doesn't do that. He waits two days. And then... After two days, he's like, all right, now we're, it's time to go. It's time for us to take place. And his disciples are like, yo, quick question. Uh, didn't the last time you go to this area, the town of Bethany, uh, the Jews there, yeah, didn't they, uh, they want to kill you? 
because earlier in the book of John, uh, Jesus pointed out some of the hypocrisy of a group of people, and they were so angry about this, so infuriated that they actually wanted to kill Jesus. But that doesn't faze him. So he goes anywhere. Anyway, he goes, he goes there. Now, I don't know what you've led in your life, um, whether it's a sales pitch meeting, a class project, doesn't matter. you just picking food for somebody. If you pick the option that might get you and, you know, your buddies killed, you're probably going to get some pushback. You're probably going to get some whining. And so he, his, his disciples reluctantly follow him with, uh, well, we might as well get killed too and just go with them. It's quite hilarious. So here he is. This is where we'll pick up the story. Jesus is walking to his friends, uh, one who's in need, with whiny disciples on his heels. And, and where he's walking to, the people, last time he was there, wanted to kill him. Man, before, like, already, that's a lot of pull and tension on a person. That is so much. So we'll pick up. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 11, uh, starting at verse 17. Uh, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Now, the gospel message are full of stories of Jesus healing people. And if you were a friend of Jesus, you hung out with Jesus any amount of time, you probably saw several healing miracles, if not thousands of miracles, of Jesus healing somebody. So when Martha says, if you had been here, she knowing that Jesus has the power to heal her brother, then he would not have died. Martha blames Jesus, accuses Jesus. So, man, how do we respond to accusations? You just start fumbling out excuses, making some apologies for something, not understanding what's happening. Are you like me? I like to argue right back, uh, get in your face about it, um, maybe blame something or someone else. Uh, yeah, Jesus didn't do any of that. So Jesus found his friend is in the tomb. You know, he's already dealing with all that other tension. Now he shows up, finds out his friend is in the grave, you know, the tomb. He's dead, and now he's being accused. I mean, that's a lot of tension. That's like turning your car 100 miles an hour with the Packers offensive line on the bench seat next to you, you know, slamming you up against the window. Ooh. But that, does that move Jesus? Does that push Jesus over the edge? So Jesus does something incredible. He actually invites Martha into something. Let's keep reading in verse uh, 23. Uh, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, 
who is to come into the world. So Jesus doesn't argue back. He doesn't shift the blame or react out of this high-strung emotional situation. Instead, he invites Martha into a conversation about something, something bigger than the moment they found themselves in. Because he invites Martha to look at this situation, to experience this moment through the lens, really, of eternity. He says, I am the resurrection, I am the life. So Jesus is reminding Martha of the promise of God. That through Jesus, we would be saved. That through Jesus, we would have life, uh, eternal life, that we would have an eternal hope. And so he takes her almost out of this moment, this great moment of sorrow and sadness, and he reminds her, if you're going to grieve, to grieve towards me. Grieve towards the life. Grieve towards the resurrection. And man, as Martha struggles to grieve, Jesus doesn't just go to solve her problems. Jesus wants her heart. And here's the twist. Here's the thing that just blows my mind. I'm going to jump, if you jump down to verse 43, right? If you jump down to the end of the story, what happens? What happens? Who knows the story? What happens at the end of the story? Oh my gosh, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Are you kidding me? Lazarus is back. And that, oh my gosh, that's incredible. That's the miracle. That's not actually what blows my mind. I mean, that's pretty impressive as itself. I'll let Pastor John speak on, you know, raising someone from the dead another time. I'm not touching that. Uh, But Lazarus is back. He's alive. The great sorrow and pain that Martha's experiencing, uh, Jesus is going to actually fix. It's going to be gone. But why doesn't, but like, look at Jesus' response. Does he tell Martha, like, stop crying. I'm going to go get Lazarus. I'll be right back. Did he know that he was going to go get Lazarus? Did Jesus know? Yes. He knew what was going to happen. He knew this was going to take place. And yet he didn't look to go fix Martha's problems. He went to go. He went after her heart. He didn't go tell her, "Stop crying, you crazy lady," and tell my disciples, "Stop whining while you're at it." No, he he doesn't come to just fix the problem. Instead, he addresses the situation in fullness of grace and truth. Jesus invites Martha into relationship with him. That when you grieve, you grieve towards the resurrection and the life. You grieve in the hope and the promise that we have in him. But the tension doesn't stop there for Jesus. In verse 28 and 31, Martha actually goes back home and tells her sister Mary that, hey, Jesus is looking for you. So Mary gets up in a hurry and takes off for Jesus and uh, the people who were mourning with Mary get up and go with her in uh, verse uh, 32. Uh, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Okay, here we go. More accusation. How dare you, Jesus? The loss I've just experienced is your fault. I may be at your feet and calling you Lord, but... I'm still going to blame you for the pain I'm experiencing. And Jesus doesn't get angry. He doesn't complain. 
Instead, verse 33, uh, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Man, tension. Lazarus had died. He's going to a group of people who last time threatened to kill him. He's got whiny disciples. He got accused once, and now he's getting accused again. Yeah, verse, uh, what is that, 33 would have said, and then Sam became annoyed. But that's a good thing Jesus is there, not Sam. That's, that's not how Jesus responded. No, how does it say Jesus responded? It said that he was what? Moved. He was deeply moved. So much so that we get to the next verse, which is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Not because of its great promise, not because of its powerful context, right? Uh, this, this awesome uh, thing we can cling on to. It's famous because it's the shortest verse in the Bible, which is Jesus wept. Jesus is so present. He's so grounded. He's so centered that he can connect so well with his friend who's experienced such great sorrow and pain to the point where it brings him to weeping. I hate crying. My wife's only seen me cry like uh, a handful of times. It takes so much energy. Uh, I just don't like having to like get in touch with those painful things. Why would I want to remember that? So if you need to, like, you're going through something, you've got to cry about it, I'm like the last person you want around. So sometimes my wife just tells me, Sam, I just need to go cry, I just need to cry about that. And, um, and so I will be physically present in that moment, but I'm going to be in a different, like, world. So I'll be, oh, man, how did the Packers lose that football game? You know, I'm just like... Some of you made, maybe made that made you cry, but I'm just like, I'm whatever I can go towards that's not feeling that, I will run towards. Hate doing that. It's terrible. So you can pray for us. That would be helpful. Um, but the story isn't even done yet. And I'm like, are you kidding me, Jesus? You're so present. Even with all that tension and pull and all the accusations that you can weep with your friend. Verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Man. So again, once again, it would have said, and Sam became even more annoyed, but instead, uh, Jesus is brought to weeping again. It said he was moved deeply again. And this is like a wave, another emotional heavy wave. And if you've ever gone through something extremely heavy, you've grieved your way through something, or even you walked with somebody who's heavy grief, it is like you just pour out and you just cry. And there's just like, it's the point where you've got like nothing left to give. And you're like, dude, the, and you kind of like do the calm down. And finally you just like, you're just in a state of numbness. And finally, you can just like breathe and you just like think for a few moments and then a little time passes and then it just again, it just ramps up and there you go and you can't control it. And that's what it looks like. Jesus is going after these waves of emotional heaviness. It's becoming exhausting, right? You go through these things. And then 
it stinks in there, is what follows after that. More whining, more complaining. Okay, here we go. Find out friends sick. Gonna go there. Whiny disciples. Friends dead. Accusations twice. Crying with your friends. And yet Jesus still somehow, what? Has the passion, has the energy, has the focus to do the will of the Father and calls Lazarus out of the grave. Man, that is so foreign to anything we know. Man, it just takes a driver at a light and I'm like losing it. And yet I wasn't even accused of anything. I didn't even have to go through anything heavy and emotional and I'm just not present anymore. So how did Jesus do that? You know, uh, Jesus, he didn't give in to the complexity and speed of the situation. No, instead, he moved in love and peace. And Jesus invites us to follow him and his ways. And the way of Jesus is to be present. In order really to do that, that's where pump the brake. That's where we need to slow down. So we're flying right past that. It didn't matter all the things that make you want to go, ah, in life that Jesus was dealing with in that moment. He moved slowly. He moved in kindness. He moved in peace. He moved in love. So is that power? Is that ability? Is that thing? Is that available to us? Is that, is that available to us? Okay, like some of you guys are like, eh, maybe, I don't know. Um, some of you guys are telling me yes. So we're going to deep dive in the next several weeks about this. We've got to understand how anxiousness is wrecking havoc on our souls, our emotions, our mental state, our finances, our spiritual focus, you name it. We've got to learn how to pump the brakes. And I told you in the beginning I felt like a hypocrite you know, coming to talk about this thing. Um, and I kind of knew this. So last weekend, I was on this youth retreat. And I found myself alone. Nobody was around. Um, picture the scene. It's dark. It's getting late at night. Um, snow, cold, icy breeze on my back. Um, this warm, blazing fire on my face. And I just kind of sat there. And I just started talking to God all the things that are troubling me, things that are stressing me out, the things that are eating me alive, just me and God slowing down, taking off burdens. And Jesus asked me, you know, Sam, do you love me? Do you love me more and solutions to your problems? Do you want me just to be your butler and just fix stuff? And I'm forced to confront reality. Yes, Lord, I love you. 
more than all the stress that I feel, more than all the busyness, the anxiousness, the things that are fighting for my attention. And for a moment, I get to be present with Jesus. I get to have that peace he said he gives. No one else around. But in order to get to that moment, I had to say a word that uh, most people are really bad at saying. No. I had to say no to myself. Here I am. I'm at a weekend camp. There's probably like 100 other people, and as an extrovert, I'm like, 100 new friends. I'm like, I want to talk to all of you. Uh, and I had to say, no, Sam, you can't go talk to them. I'm hyper-competitive, and there's a broomball tournament. And I'm like, I want to, you know, kick some butt. And God, no, no, Sam, you can't go play in that. But there's a tubing hill and a skiing hill, and there's like fun. No, Sam, you can't do that. I thought those are bad things. Those are all very good things. But he's, no, Sam, you got to slow down. you got to pump the brakes so that I could have that moment alone with Jesus by the fire. Jesus invites all of us to follow him and experience him as the resurrection and the life. Jesus invites all of us to have that peace that he gives. And maybe... Uh, this is the first time you're accepting that invitation. You've been hearing this, and you sense that this thing is missing. That you feel how the world is getting more complex and moving at a faster pace. And you're like, I need that peace. I need that hope. I need that life, that resurrection. So I would encourage you after the service, uh, have a conversation about with somebody. You can find me or anyone who's got a, a lanyard around their neck, they would love to have that conversation with you. And if you've got questions, good, so do I. But let's experience this together. And then for the rest of us, Jesus may not have walked on the earth in 2022, right? Uh, had the exact same life situations that we did. I mean, Jesus was lived in ancient Israel as a carpenter, who was unmarried and through his ministry years was financially supported by a group of wealthy women. I don't think any of us looked like that. So how do we get some of that power that Jesus has? Well, Jesus really modeled a way of life for us. It's not a specific step-by-step guide on how to do it, but there's a way of life that we need to change our approach and pursue that so we can learn what slowing down pump the brakes, be fully present, and experience that peace and chaos, enjoying struggle. But here's the truth about that, though. You're going to have to make some decisions on that. And I can tell you about my experience or the experience of others and how they've gone through that and things that they do differently, but ultimately you're the one who makes that choice. You're the one who sees that in your life. I think uh, one of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 22, 3. It says, A prudent man sees danger and takes refuge, but the simple keep going and suffer for it.
Do you see danger in your life? That the road you're going down, is that sustainable? Is that going to bring you the peace that Jesus says he gives you? What does it look like to make decisions to help you find that refuge, to help you get that peace? Would you just pray with me real quick? Lord, you are the God of peace. You are holy and righteous. And in you, man, we are just in awe that you formed us, that you know us, you know all of our inmost being, all of our thoughts, all of our junk, and yet you still love us. You love us so much so that you send Jesus to die for us, that he would live a perfect life, to be the sacrificial lamb. And thank you for sending him so that we may know a way to have peace in the chaos, Lord, to how to navigate the tension we experience in this world. Because there is a war fighting for us, Lord. And in you, we have victory, Lord. Would you show us what that looks like in this week and the next coming weeks, Lord? Let it be in the front of our mind. Let us dwell in you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.